Coming up next is Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's show, we'll talk about the latest and safest methods of contraception. And we actually found that younger women wanted to use good birth control. The most common barriers in the United States um, are cost and access. Plus, not everyone feels joyous at this time of year. We have some tips for beating the holiday blues. If you're a woman in a family where it's your job to run the show and you have the idea in your head, I can't say no, then you're gonna really be in trouble because you're setting yourself up to go beyond your own resources and you're gonna end up stressed. And we address the challenge of keeping our kids safe. I just wanna caution people about those choking hazards because this time of year it is a larger risk. All that and a selection from our healing news, they're all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, though this is a time of year for joyous celebrations, not everyone feels quite that way. We'll explore just how to beat the holiday blues. Plus, we examine all the ways to keep kids safe and what you need to know. But first, the latest on the most effective and safe contraceptive methods. Well, birth control remains a topic of great controversy, not only involving whether to utilize it, but if you do, what method really works the best. Here to help us understand some of the latest findings is Dr. Renee Mested, Assistant Professor and the Division Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Mested. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I read somewhere that on the 50th anniversary, um, birth control pill has been portrayed both as the driving force of female empowerment, but also by some religious groups as kind of the bane of our existence. Um, so it does kind of raise a lot of questions. Um, but clearly, people see that it is, a, it's a, as I said, a driving force of female empowerment. And also in the new healthcare law, it's looked, as, looked at as preventive medicine. So it seems to me the middle ground is to try to reduce unwanted pregnancies and also uh, that end in abortion, but there should be the goal of greater access and more you know, effectiveness. So let's talk about this whole idea of effectiveness and choice, because apparently there are a lot more choices these days. Yes. So I thought I'd just run through with you what those choices are. Let's start with the, the pill, which as I said, it's, it's had its 50th anniversary recently. How effective is it? What are some of the pros and cons? So the birth control pill, known as the pill, to um, the general, to every, most people in this country, um, contains both estrogen and a progesterone. Um, the estrogens in birth control pills is pretty much, it, the estrogen is basically the same uh, of, for all birth control pills available in the United States except for one. Um, it's the progestins that vary, or the progesterones that vary. Um, Additionally, the doses in birth control pills vary. We can have them as low as 10 micrograms of estrogen, ranging up to 50 micrograms of estrogen, depending on a, a woman's needs. Um, the effectiveness is, it ranges from 92 to 98%. So it's pretty effective. It's, it is. It's very effective. Unfortunately, it's reliant upon the woman to take every day. Um, so there's a real, you have to maintain a schedule. Yes. There is, there's a little bit of wiggle room, so if, if a woman goes out, if she takes her pill normally at night and she goes out with her friends and, and comes in early in the morning and she takes her pill, then she'll still be, she'll still be covered. Um, and some people are not candidates for the pill, isn't that correct? No. Um, unfortunately, uh, women with a variety of health problems um, like high blood pressure or um, clotting problems, uh, her blood clots too easily, or if she has diabetes with additional kidney or eye uh, concerns, uh, women with some liver problems also can't take the birth control pill. But most young women are, are pretty free of most health conditions. Um, but the other additional upsides to taking the birth control pill is we have found that long-term use will decrease the risk of getting ovarian cancer, some of the most common ovarian cancers, by up to 50 
0.50%. Wow, that's, that's stunning. That's huge. And mm -hmm. we don't have any way of screening for ovarian cancer the way we do breast cancer. So um, that's actually very exciting. And it hasn't been found to affect breast cancer risk. It also decreases the risk of some uterine cancers. Um, for women who have heavy periods or very painful periods, it helps to control both the pain and the heaviness. Women who have something like endometriosis, it can help prevent that from uh, worsening to help protect her fertility for the future. Uh, I've had patients who have had to have blood transfusions because their periods are so heavy. Um, this has helped to manage that. I have teenagers who have something called von Willebrand syndrome, which- um, Something to do with clotting? But it goes in the opposite direction. They don't clot their blood. They yeah. bleed very easily. And the, some of these girls have never been on a sports team. They haven't gone to school dances or participated in after-school activities because For they- fear of, of injury. Well, and they bleed so heavily yeah. oh, uh, when they have their periods, oh, so they're chronically anemic. So this actually helps to treat that clotting problem as well as decrease their bleeding so these girls can have a normal life. So there are a lot of benefits to the pill, in fact. Yes, there are. Very interesting. So what about the implant? What is that? They talk about the implant. What is it, first of all? So the implant is the subdural con subdermal contraceptive implant. Um, in, the con in our country, we have Nexplanon. It is good for three years. Uh, it gives a continuous dose of progesterone only. So it's a thin rod that's inserted under the skin yes. and the upper arm? Yes, it is. Um, a doctor does have to, or a, a nurse practitioner or a healthcare provider does have to put it in. Um, the advantage is that once it's in, it's there. It, it's not going to fall out. It's not going to get lost. If a woman loses her insurance, she doesn't lose access to her contraception. Um, if How she, long does it last for? It's effective for three years. Um, I've referred to it as Norplant Light. Because for, for women my age, I'm in my 40s, uh, we had Norplant in our late teens and early 20s, and that was six rods good for five years. Well, this is one rod good for three years. Mm -hmm. So, and, and as you said, it has a high uh, effectiveness. It's, it's as good as being sterilized without actually being sterilized. Wow. So if a woman has it placed and two years later decides she's ready to start her family, we will, her provider will remove it and... Um, the hormones out of her system within actually within a week, um, but she can get ready to get pregnant within the month. So, are there any contraindications for using the implant? Like um, who should not use the implant? Women with active liver disease, basically, because the liver is what um, clears the the medication from her system. So, um, and there's a question about women with clotting disorders, um, but. For the most part, it's it's because it doesn't have the estrogen. The estrogen is the clotting disorder component that we worry about. It's interesting. Just going back for a moment, the pill, when you have a tendency to clot too easily, would be contraindicated. Correct. But on the other hand, if you have a problem clotting, like with, with as you mentioned with von Willebrand's, the pill might assist you in that regard. Yes. So it's a very individual thing. Obviously, yes. all these things need to be discussed with your with your own healthcare provider. Yes. What's the shot? So the shot is also progesterone only. And that is a three-month injection um, that is, it, its effectiveness it can also be as low, in the, in, from the low 90s up to the high 90%. Um, it's effective for three months. It, in some cases, can fall under the area, the title of long-acting reversible contraception. Um, the downside is that uh, the woman still needs to uh, renew it effectively every three months. And that's pretty frequent. Yes, I mean, it's, it's four times a year, so it's not as bad as a pill every day, mm -hmm. um, but it, it still can be inconvenient for, for many women. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, here with obstetrician-gynecologist Dr. Renee Mested. And we're talking about the most effective birth control methods that are available today. Are there contraindications for something like the shot? Um, again, active liver disease. Because, similar one. Yes, because it is only progesterone, so um, it doesn't have the other other uh, side effects. I've got two more here I wanted to go through, actually three. What's the patch? So the patch is a combined hormonal method as well. So it has estrogen and progesterone. So it women who, ha who can't use estrogen methods cannot use the patch. Um, it looks like a fat Band-Aid that uh, goes on a woman's skin and releases the hormones very slowly through her skin a week at a time. So she replaces it once a week. And it has a lot of the same benefits as birth control pills, the same um, 
negative side effects as birth control pills. We don't have any data on it as far as protecting against ovarian or um, endometrial cancer or uterine cancer because it, it just hasn't been around as long. The birth control pill, because it's been around for so long, is one of the best studied, most best understood medication we have. Are there contra contraindications for using the patch as well, though? The same Similar thing with to the, the birth control yes. pill. Yes. Now, the last one, or actually there's two more I want to get to, the ring, which is something we're going to get to when we talk about the IUD, but the ring is actually inserted into the vagina. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. So the ring is a very flexible uh, vinyl uh, device. Um, you can twist it around your finger. It's fairly easy. Um, it is effective for up to a month at a time. It does fit in the vagina. It, it it's very easy to put in. It's as easy as a tampon. Um, so an individual can do it for themselves. Yes. They don't have to have this done by a healthcare provider. No, no. We give a prescription. She can pick it up at the pharmacy and just exchange it out every every month. And again, does that carry with it certain contraindications, like who shouldn't be using it? Because it's a combined hormonal method, it also has estrogen in it. Um, it has the same bad side effects the as the birth concerns. control pills. So the IUD, now it's gotten a lot of bad press in this country because of the Dacon Shield, I guess, in the 1970s. There were issues about pelvic inflammatory disease, and there's just been a general mistrust of it since. Help us understand quickly what it is and what's the story today. So today in the United States, we have four IUDs available. They're intrauterine devices. A uh, healthcare provider does have to put it up inside the uterus, so it slides through the cervix and stays in the uterus. Um, the length of time they're used ranges from three years to ten years, depending on which device you uh, a woman receives. Um, the controversy came out of the 70s and 80s data that indicated that women who were using IUDs had more pelvic inflammatory disease, which is a sexually transmitted infection that uh, infects the fallopian tubes, resulting in scarring of the fallopian tubes and infertility. Um, in the 80s and early 90s, when um, other doctors looked at the data again and separated out the different IUDs, they found that actually only one IUD caused the problems, and that was the Delcon Shield. The other IUDs were just as safe as any other method of birth control um, for sexually active women. Obviously, women who weren't having sex were not going to get PID, but for women having sex, um, the, the IUDs were no more risky than any other method of birth control. Unfortunately, though, a lot of people were scared away from the IUDs, so for many, many years, it was only about 1-2% to of women in the United States used it, even though it was very popular around the world. So currently, we have four, like I said. Three have progesterone on them. One uses copper. The copper IUD, known as the Paragard in the United States, uh, is effective for 10 years, and it does not have any hormones, and it works because copper prevents sperm from being able to fertilize an egg. Wow. So That's surreal. how it works. Oh, interesting. So it just kind of blocks the whole process of it, it just it, it, um, It's toxic to the sperm, basically. Wow. So, Kills them all. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. It also can actually be used for um, emergency birth control. Uh, so if a woman has unprotected sex and it's inserted within five days, um, it's more effective than the emergency birth control pills, Wow. quite honestly. Then the other three, um, you have the Mirena, which is good for five years, the Laletta, which is good for three years, and the Skyla, which is also good for three years. You know, each year in the United States, there are about an estimated 3 million unplanned pregnancies and about 1.2 million lead to abortion. Um, and about half of these unintended pregnancies seem to take place because of the either incorrect or inconsistent use of the contraception. And you've been involved in a study that really looked at all of this. What did you find when it came to the most effective methodology and what factors played a role? So the most effective methods of birth control are the IUDs and the Nexplanon implant. Um, and that is because once they go into a woman's body, she owns them. Um, if she loses her insurance, if she doesn't have any money, if um, she can't get to the pharmacy at the end of the week, none of those things will affect how well she uses her birth control. It will be with her until it, it runs out. Um, and things like their age or their how stressed they are or what other you know, contravening factors take place in their life doesn't interfere with their ability Correct. to control their birth their you know, basically their contraception. Yes. yes. The most common barriers in the United States um, are cost and access. 
um, whether the physician knows how to use these methods or the pharmacies are willing to dispense. So the bottom line, I mean, in your study you found that the age of the, of the individual played a role. Younger people were more apt to perhaps misuse contraception or didn't use it on a normal, a regular enough schedule. How about socioeconomic level? Did that play a role or education? Um, yes. And we actually found that um, younger women wanted to use good birth control. They just, um, particularly with the, scare, the old scares of the IUDs, a lot of the doctors weren't willing to give them the IUDs, and most of them didn't know how to put the implants in. So if you had a provider who was willing to put an IUD in, the, the young women were very excited to have access to good birth control because they knew that that getting pregnant would not serve them well. So just to wrap up, what's the bottom line? What recommendation do you make to your patients or what do you see as the overall issue in terms of access effectiveness and cost? So um, first line birth control recommendations should be the IUDs or the implant um, because they are the most effective, they are actually the most cost effective and they do not require the patient to participate in, in their, how effective they are. Well, thank you so much. My guest has been Dr. Renee Mested. She's Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Division Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Upstate Medical University. Next up, how to beat the holiday blues. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, the holiday season offers the most wonderful of times, but it also can be for many a time of increased stress and depression, which can ruin your holidays and even hurt your health. Here with some advice and some tips for avoiding the holiday blues and making them the best holidays they can be is Dr. Rich O'Neill. He is a professor, a psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry and for the Institute of Decision Excellence and Leadership at Upstate Medical University. Hi, Rich. Thanks Hello, for coming Linda. in. Nice to see you. So the holiday season really brings some unwelcome guests like stress and depression. Yeah. And it's no wonder. I mean, we're all running around doing a million things under a lot of, you know, time pressure, demands, cleaning, entertaining. Yeah. What's the most important concept for people well, to remember? You've got your finger on one of the key things, which is what happens at this time is a lot of extra stuff comes into our lives that takes up time and energy and resources and the one of the psychology definitions of stress it understandings about how that stress happens is that we have insufficient resources to manage those events and especially events that are perceived as unpredictable out of un our control uncontrollable and potentially costly or dangerous and you're absolutely right. Time pressure heightens that. Research shows you put people in a stressful situation and you, and you put time pressure on, stress goes up even further. Noise makes things more stressful for us. And one of the key things there, Linda, is if we are entering the holiday season, for instance, and we're at a low ebb ourselves, so we're kind of depleted already. We haven't been taking good care of ourselves. All of these extra demands are going to make us feel even more stressed. So one key is to, to managing the holidays is see if you can plan ahead. You know, see, okay, how, what, what worked or didn't work last year, right? What helped me manage the holidays in a, in a positive way? What did I do or not do, you know, uh, not overspend, for instance? Uh, did I plan ahead and manage getting my, if you buy presents, did I manage getting them in advance so I wasn't going wild at the last minute <laughs> like like I tend to do Christmas Eve that right? I'm rushing to the mall. The 11th hour shopper. <laughs> right, but I actually enjoy that, so that's not stressful for me. But uh, if it is stressful for you, you want to plan ahead and don't do that. You know, start 
buying your stuff in advance and you know making your plans with who, how many people are going to be at your house or where you're going to go and so, cetera. Kind of what I'm hearing is that yeah. in part you almost need to first take your own emotional temperature meaning yes. you need to first figure out how you're feeling yes. acknowledge your feelings yes. and then begin to try to do an analysis of maybe what went wrong before yes and learn from that yes and as you said then put some new procedures into place yes feelings our feelings are a very good source of information about uh, ourselves and the world around us. Now that said, feelings can come from feelings are spontaneous, immediate reactions to what's happening right around us. And they're very useful. However, feelings can also come from what we think. And those thoughts may have nothing to do with go what's going on around us. So thoughts and, create feelings, but they may not be based on reality. Yes, and we can create a lot of stress if we have thoughts that are distorted representations of reality. So going to that idea, yes. if your expectations yes. of the holidays Bingo. are perfect harmony, Bingo. perfect You're in trouble. Christmas <laughs> You're past, in trouble. Yes. all those images that you yeah. carry around. The Kodak images. From right. not only your own, potentially your own childhood, yes. potentially, yeah. but also what the media is constantly you yes. know, promoting here. Yeah. That's a big issue. Yeah, because you're expecting too much. You know, so you're expecting the perfect holiday and you might try to live up to that. You might try to get, you know, mega gifts that are actually beyond your realistic resources to buy and then you have big trouble come January when you got to pay the credit card bill. Um, you might be expecting there to be, you know, no conflict between anybody. You, you invite the two people to your house who have a mega conflict in their lives and you expect them to get along with each other on the holidays when they're probably not going to do that. So you, so you want to uh, see well what how did things go last year what was realistic where did we exceed our resources and plan ahead make things predictable reasonably controllable to a certain extent and uh, limit the cost to what you can manage limiting the cost stick to a budget but how yes. about learning to say no Absolutely. I think as a woman I'll say that's yeah. one of our greatest um, downfalls uh -huh. is feeling we can do it all for everyone. Yes, that's and an unrealistic expectation. <laughs> Absolutely right. That there's a thought that if you've got that one, you're in trouble because you can't do it all. Nobody can do it all. And nobody can do it all for everyone. So absolutely right. So learning how to say no. And if you're a woman in a family where it's your job to run the show. And most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> yeah. And you're it's and you have the idea in your head, I can't say no. I can't say no to having 40 people when we can only manage 20 or 10 or 5. You know, I can't say no. Then you're going to really be in trouble because you're setting yourself up to go beyond your own resources and you're going to end up stressed. If yeah. you're just joining us, you're listening to HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with our psychologist, Dr. Rich O'Neill. And we're talking about how to avoid the holiday blues, but also make the holidays as sweet as they can yeah. be, yeah. which is also very important to remember. How about things like taking time in the midst? I mean, when stress builds, it's really hard in the, in the moment when you're under a lot of stress to somehow stop and regroup. Absolutely. But isn't it a Absolutely. crucial thing to do? Absolutely. You've got to take good care of yourself. Because if, you if you're not taking good care of yourself, by definition, you're depleted. You're emotionally and physically depleted. And then when these extra tasks come in, you're going to feel stressed. Um, so absolutely take time. And uh, I, uh, one thing that's very important is take time to connect with the people that you feel close to and that you want to have some close time. So uh, I don't have wild expectations. My wife and I tend to spend time with our family doing things like sitting around and chatting, playing cribbage, you know, playing uh, uh, Scrabble, those kinds of things where we can interact with uh, the people we love and have a good time doing that. To me, that's my definition of a very successful very happy holiday 
just having a good time, having fun, joking, teasing each other, etc. cetera, uh, you know. So being realistic and setting a realistic goals is a big, big piece of this yes. whole thing. But yeah. what if you are either, find yourself alone? Yes. Um, or maybe many people who you have loved are no longer yes. with you. Yes. Either of those situations or both. Or let's say you don't celebrate that holiday. Let's say Christmas isn't part of your tradition. Mm -hmm. And it looks to you like the whole world is out there scurrying around having a beautiful white Christmas, so to speak, which we wonder whether will happen this year. Nevertheless, um, what then? How How do you manage the feeling of being isolated, left out, those kinds of feelings? Good, so... People who are alone and feel socially isolated, that is very stressful. Long-term, people who are socially isolated don't live as long and tend to not feel good emotionally. So uh, it's good to be able to connect with people. Now, if you find yourself alone in the holidays, there are you can do some simple things to connect with other people. Uh, it does help, by the way, even make email connection with people or phone connection with people in your family. So if there's nobody around, you can do that. It's I find it helpful just to be with people. When I'm feeling alone and I'm thinking, oh, you know, this is, I really want to be with people. You don't have to necessarily even be with people that you know you can go to the movies, for instance, and be in a place with people or a restaurant and be in a place with people. There's something about the mood that can be contagious as long as you're not thinking to yourself, well, the whole time, oh, I'm so alone. I'm so different than these people. You want to notice how you're similar and make little connections with people like maybe chat with the waiter or chat with the ticket taker or do those kinds of connections. Those make a difference. Now, you also asked about what if people have, you've lost, lost. people in yeah, your family. It seems yes. to me the holidays are a time where yes. you look back at the people who meant a lot to you, perhaps are yes. no longer with you. Yes. So that has to bring potentially bring on some sadness and, you know, blues, so yes. to speak. Well, uh, blues are different than sadness. Okay. Uh, yes, when we have somebody we loved and they they died or they're, or they're, for some reason, no longer with us, maybe divorced, you know, those kinds of situations. Um, yes, we can feel sad. We'll miss the person. Nice to let yourself acknowledge that. No, yeah, I feel sad. And that's a normal way to feel when you've lost somebody. Um, uh, you can... Uh, celebrate their life. You can talk briefly about them with other people or uh, about how you miss them. You know, so my mother recently passed away about a year ago, so no doubt we'll talk a little bit about her. We'll remember her. Um, so those are, you can do that. Uh, memor- memorialize a person. Uh, if you get depressed, depression is different than sadness. Uh, that has something to do with how you're managing your feelings about the person uh, that you you end up with that depressed that's actually what we call it a defensive experience that's not the feeling that's a way not to have your feeling so if you get depressed you actually might want to talk to a therapist about that go and talk to somebody and see you know and whenever I think about my mother I feel depressed I lose my energy I feel bad about myself hopeless about the future extreme you can get suicidal that's something you really want to talk about with a therapist because that's not sadness that's different so what about if the third piece of that question yes, yes. and we still have a little bit of time yeah if you don't celebrate this holiday yeah how can you feel a part of well, how can you how can you deal with those feelings potentially of not being a part of something? Are there coping strategies? What do you recommend for those people? Sure. Well, you know what, what's happening there is we're noticing the difference between us and other people, right? So, uh, you know, if you're Jewish, for instance, you and I were talking earlier. Uh, you're Jewish, and you're on Christmas. You're not with the party. So, one thing I know you were saying was, oh, I've suggested to. Uh, my rabbi that we have a communal dinner what a great idea rather Lynn I thought think that's terrific rather than be isolated and by yourself and think oh we're not part of the party here and it is a very big party with a lot of media attention etc why don't we make a party let's go out and, and make something where we can be together and in a funny way 
then you'd be doing exactly the same thing that the Christian folks are doing, right? They're having a party and you could feel that communal thing. Another thing that you can do certainly is volunteer. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, it's not your party, right? You can go and volunteer and help other people who are less fortunate than ourselves. Doing that has been linked very strongly to happiness. So, and that certainly would be in the um, uh, spirit of the holiday as well. Wonderful. Well, uh -huh. those are all really good pieces of advice. Yeah. I want to thank you so much once again. When you come in, there's this aura of wisdom that you share <laughs> with all of us. And it is a difficult time of year, but potentially a very joyous time yes. of year for everyone. So once again, thanks so much for coming in and sharing these ideas with us. Sure. My guest has been Dr. Rich O'Neill. He's a psychologist and a professor of psychiatry in the Institute for Decision, Excellence, and Leadership at Upstate Medical University. Kids safe, what you need to know. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And it's time for your Healthy Monday Minute, Avoid Deprivation Disaster. Listen closely to this one. Don't try to abstain from your guilty pleasures during the holidays. Learn how to balance your favorite foods and help you maintain your weight without feeling cheated. The key word is portions. Reduce your serving size of calorie-dense foods and fill your plate with high-fiber fruits, veggies, beans, and whole grains. Enjoy a tempting food this week by planning ahead and keeping portions small. You can easily mix vegetables in with your favorite entree, start your meal with a large salad, or add fruit to a bite or two of your favorite dessert. So take time this Monday to brainstorm solutions for your next party or get-together, and don't deprive yourself. Choose a small, healthy portion and enjoy. Have a healthy Monday and a healthy week. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Keeping kids safe is always a top priority for parents, but the holiday season often brings with it some additional hazards to be aware of. Here with more on all of this is Elizabeth Sapio, Pediatric Injury Prevention Coordinator for Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital. Welcome, Liz. So the holidays can bring with them some hidden safety concerns when it comes to kids. Help us understand what those are. Sure, around the holidays, you know, we're going to parties and people are bringing food and we're having many festive times. And what happens sometimes is some of the food that might be in our home or the things that we might be cooking with could be dangerous to little children, whether that be a grape or a carrot or things that we might not be paying attention to when children are around and we're giving them snacks and keeping them happy amongst the dinner folks and the parties that are happening. So I just want to caution people about those choking hazards because this time of year it is a, a larger risk for young children not just with food though with toys you know obviously this time of year people are purchasing toys and giving little children toys so I really recommend that when you're looking to purchase a toy for a child that you rec you look at the recommendations for age it's not just because the toy might developmentally be best for a four-year-old and up but it also might mean that there are pieces and small pieces within that toy that a little two one two-year-old could choke on and that's where we see most of our choking hazards getting getting let me just take a minute and sure. stop back to food. Mm -hmm. Are there also additional hazards around the fact that, as you said, that with parties, people put food out, mm -hmm. and even if the food is not necessarily intended for a small toddler or a small sure. child, the fact is, in as you mentioned, in the, in the context of a party and getting ready and all of that, yeah. you might be distracted and not realize that sure. the toddler is 
is creeping around, creeping up to the table the, where yeah. there's where there are those, as you said, grapes or hard carrots or candies, or, right. um, and you know, and that's exactly it. You know, I think we're so preoccupied this time of year, and it's no intent that we're not trying to be thoughtful of our children. But when you have a party or you're going to a party, you're not familiar with the home maybe you're in, and they've said bring your children. Well, maybe the table that has all the food on it is low, and you have a little climber that's gonna get up there and see that shiny candy or the you know whatever is up there they're they're curious at this age especially when they don't have the expressive communication skills that most toddlers don't so we want to be really conscientious of our environment when we go in with children how about food allergies i mean Absolutely. it also strikes me that it, <clears throat> again at this time of year if you're invited to some gathering and a mm-hmm. party there may be things like dips or all mm-hmm. kinds of things that a child might ordinarily be able to eat but You may not be aware that there are some potential for allergic reactions. So I caution, I think a lot of people nowadays, especially with children, for example, with peanut allergies, you find the parents are really proactive. They're very conscientious of those allergies. Schools have brought it to the forefront. So again, when you're going into a new environment, whether you're traveling on a plane or going somewhere, you want to be conscientious of what the plane might be handing out as snacks or where you might be going to the party and that might be offering. And just bringing your own snacks and bringing things that are more appropriate for you and your child that way you don't have the awkward situation of saying something like my child's hungry but they can't eat that (laughs) at least you know that you have an out you've got a little snack in your back pocket and you can help the child make sure they're fed (laughs) that's very good advice so getting back to the toys because obviously this is the season of Mm -hmm. toys not that that it isn't all year round (laughs) but even more so right now how about in terms of purchasing and looking carefully at the toys you buy I mean a lot of our uh, purchase purchasing these days is online absolutely and I guess the question is does that um, potential give us to give us the potential for perhaps not realizing both in terms of age related mm-hmm. you know what's appropriate age related but also in terms of what the potential ingredients are perhaps where it was made because mm-hmm. as you know in recent years there's been some blowback about some toys imported from China having Love. toxic Mm-hmm. Lead paint right. and such. So what in mm-hmm. general advice, generally, you sure. kind of alluded to, would you give to parents in terms of the whole purchase and decision-making process? And then again, after that, I want to talk about what happens, for example, on Christmas morning when everybody is tearing <laughs> through all of their Sure. Gifts. Well, first, to your first question, I think it's important to know that there are recall lists for toys, which is a number one, one of the most important things I think a parent or a buyer should look for. And you can go to the Safe Kids Worldwide website or Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital slash Safe Kids, and we will have a list of recall products up there. And it's important for parents to know or family members or people that are not used to buying for children. I think that that is a really important point. Aunts, uncles, cousins, people that maybe have never purchased for a young child are going out and thinking, oh, this is really cool. I would have liked this when I was a kid, but maybe not the most appropriate toy or it's recalled for some reason. So checking on that is important. When you're purchasing online, there should be almost all Amazon or any of those. You'll see at the bottom product details. And you want to look at that list because that is the list, the drop down, that's going to have information about small parts or batteries or button batteries or things that are potential risk to your child. And number three, all toys have a recommended age. So you really do want to pay attention to that age recommendation. And again, if you're in a family with more than one child, mm-hmm. you have a variety of ages and it's probably important important to realize that if your five, six, seven-year-old is opening a gift and you have a toddler running around, they potentially have access to those small parts. And you're absolutely right. I have myself personally, I have a 10 and a half and almost a six-year-old, but when they were younger, obviously my five and a half-year-old and my newborn, I would go to the dollar store after Christmas or any of those Home Home Depot, any place that sells tubs, because that's the big time year to storage, clean out your home, New Year's resolution, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna clean out, we're right. going to do this. But what you find is great sales on great tubs and labeling things and putting them in tubs and really educating your children about why it's important you put your Legos in this tub because your two-year-old or your one-year-old that's toddling around it's easy for them to pick up those little things they're on the ground they see them quicker than we do you know so basically what you're saying is storing vigilance storage Storage. being aware Mm -hmm. at all times and as as I alluded to even on Christmas morning when everything's being torn and thrown everywhere (laughs) there needs to be 
vigilance, especially with small children. I think so. And I think also, too, if you're going to have toys that are going to be little and they're going to be under the tree and you are going to have potential risks, you may want to say, okay, to your 10-year-olds, I'm going to have you open these toys first. We're going to make sure everything's cleaned up and then have the little one. I mean, it's really just what fits your family, but recognizing the risks is, is there is really part of prevention. I agree. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with child safety expert Liz Sapio, and we're talking about how to keep your kids safe. Now, Obviously, the holidays are important, are a time with all these safety concerns, but there are other safety concerns on your list. Let's talk a little bit about car seats. Sure. What are the basic recommendations these days in Mm -hmm. terms of how long kids Mm -hmm. have to remain in car seats? I think there's a New York State law to that effect. Tell us about that. So one thing, too, this time of year, the roads right now, thankfully, we're very fortunate to have nice, clean roads, but especially when the wintertime comes, one thing I want to caution is is that when it comes to car seats, we bundle our children in all these warm clothing. They're snowsuit, they're, you know, and they're all bundled up and then we put them in their car seat. And what happens is, is that when we put them in that car seat, we haven't adjusted or made the changes necessary to make sure they're fitted into that car seat appropriately. So one thing that's my biggest, I guess, uh, advice at this time of year, especially with all the travel and the cold weather, really be thoughtful about what clothing you're putting on your child. Because if your car seat is fitted correctly, that snowsuit and those clothings would be inappropriate at that moment. So in other words, what happens is if you have a puffy jacket, you got it. the seat is not, the, the, uh, the straps. straps are too loose. Mm-hmm. And actually there's been a lot of talk of late yes. that so loose that the child could still be catapulted out of the jacket, out of the, the seat. So what yes. do you recommend not to put on a jacket and perhaps cover the child with a blanket? I, I or? would. Well, a few things you can do. Number one is is that you know warming up your car for just the minute or two that because cars heat up pretty fast and they're pretty warm. Just as in the summer we worry about heat stroke with children and being in the car without air, in the winter with the heat on it's going to be give, provide the children with warmth. So a yes, make sure that they're not in the um, stuffy clothes. But then you can bring something like a tight blanket you could tuck around their legs. With infants, you want to be really conscious because little ones are rear-facing. So we don't want anything like a big blanket or anything over them because we can't see them if they're rear-facing. So you don't want to risk the injury of any suffocation. So just be, be thoughtful about that. Maybe warm up the car. Give yourself an extra two minutes. I know that's hard. I'm a parent too, but sometimes that's the the difference between life and death. Do we need to check our seat, our seats? Yes. And do if so, do we need to do so with a certified technician? First of all, what is a certified technician? So the uh, NISTA, the National Highway Transportation Safety Institute, uh, has a program along with Safe Kids, which is the uh, the organization, the body that certifies car seat technicians. We here at Upstate now have six certified child passenger safety technicians, and in April we'll be training another 15 to 20 more technicians. Wow. The goal being in the future, the very near future, that Upstate will be the first and only regional hospital that provides a fitting station for families in the community through the, all the counties that we serve here at Upstate. And will that be free of charge? That will families? be free of charge. Wow. So what happens is, is that, and that'll be in the future, like I said, we will certainly announce when this is something we're ready to roll out. But in the, in the meantime, here at Upstate, when a family comes to the hospital and say they've been in a motor vehicle crash, we recognize that car seat is it should be thrown out at that point it's not safe to reuse that car seat so at this point through the help of our services like child life and social work and other uh people that are trained here at upstate we then recognize well we need to help this family with a new car seat so a getting the proper car seat for the proper child fitting the proper way in the proper way in the car and then helping to make sure that car seat is properly installed but it's educating parents and caregivers because if I just put in your car seat, we know that you go home and grandma or someone else has maybe taken the child somewhere else. So we need to educate the parent and the caregiver so that they know how to properly install their car seat. And there is, is there a law right now in New York State in terms of for how long, at what ages kids sure. have to remain in car seats? We strongly recommend a few things, a rule of thumb. Keep your child rear facing, meaning that they're facing backwards as long as possible. And some people say, well, their little legs are scrunched. Research and crash tests have proven that they are safer rear-facing as long as possible. Number two, when you are forward-facing, do not change over into a booster seat or a high-back booster until at least the child is 4 or 40 pounds. But look at your car seat recommendations. A lot of them harness up to 65 pounds, which is 
the best practice. Number three, making sure that we don't have our children in the front seat. I can't stress enough that every single day I drive around, even in my daughter's own school, and I'm not saying that parents are not be, are being neglectful, but a child under the age of 13 should not be sitting in the front seat. We have airbags and other mechan mechanisms in our car to provide safety to us as passengers, and a child that age is not capable physically of withstanding a crash that could uh, an airbag or other things that we might have. And I have parents say, well, I disabled the airbag. Well, you know, it's still a risk. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very key point. Let's get to something. I just want to turn to something before we run out sure. of time. What about issues of pet safety? I sure. know. I mean, we have to be careful with our pets in terms uh -huh. of their own safety. But there's also this issue of dog bites. And yes. I think that people are very... Um, aware of it, but yet maybe not know exactly what to do. Tell us what to do to well, protect our kids. we're fortunate here at Safe Kids and at the Upstate New York Safe Kids. We formed a relationship with Helping Hounds here in Syracuse. They place almost 1,200 dogs in adoptive homes with families. And through our research, we're recognizing that 77% of dog bites happen by the family dog. It isn't the strange dog you're walking down the street. It's your own dog in your home. But it's not always something that we recognize as, oh, this dog has never done this, so it'll never do this. A toddler that might be hugging and kissing a dog, that really is loving on a dog, could really potentially make your dog very scared. And they don't bite because they're mean, <laughs> they bite because they're scared. So recognizing the signs in a dog and helping a child understand what it is appropriate to do and not to do. Don't let a child need dog food. Don't take away toys. Making sure that you kiss don't the Don't take hand. away the dog's toys. Toys, right. you got that. And be, be vigilant as a parent. That's incredibly good advice. What is Safe Kids Upstate New York Coalition? Safe Basically. Kids Upstate New York Coalition is the coalition here in Upstate New York. There's over 400 in the country and overseas. We are the local chapter. We are comprised of 38 community volunteers that meet on a quarterly basis. We're always looking for more members. If you'd like more information, you could go to our website. And if you look at upstate.edu, can you find, you said slash? You Golisano Children's Hospital, you'll see Safe Kids right over on the left. There's a drop down, and I always encourage people to call or contact me if you're interested in volunteering. Well, thank you so much for coming in with all this very valuable oh. information. These are things that you would think are common sense, but it's always important to get some, Good some a little bit of reminding. <laughs> thank you so much. You're My welcome. guest has been Elizabeth Sapio. She's Pediatric Injury Prevention Coordinator for Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Our latest issue of The Healing Muse, Volume 15, showcases some familiar names. One of the many pleasures I have as editor is seeing the wide range of skills our writers display. As an example, I'd like to read three short poems by Professor Emeritus Bruce Bennett, a poet and creative writing professor from Aurora, New York. Bruce wrote us a triolet, a sonnet, and a dramatic monologue. The first one is the triolet, and it's the perfect salutation to autumn's inevitable submission to winter and how we fight to keep that at bay. It's called Late November Halcyon. If every day were like today, how joyous would our sojourn be? If only sun and blue could stay, if every day were like today, we'd live in a perpetual May, alive to everything we see. If every day were like today, how joyous would our sojourn be. Alive to everything we see, we'd sing and celebrate the day. How joyous would our sojourn be. Alive to everything we see, we'd dance around perpetually, like living in a triolet. Alive to everything we see, We'd sing and celebrate the day, if only sun and blue could stay, if only sun and blue could stay. Next up is a sonnet Bruce wrote, a meditation on growing older and the pleasures he finds in it. Here is No Idle King, with an epigraph from Tennyson's Ulysses. It little profits that an idle king... I read about the death of someone who was just my age, or just a little younger. I don't feel old. The world is often new. If anything, I feel a deeper hunger, and urge more urgent to set out, explore, 
discover what may still be there to find. I don't want less and less. It's more and more that drives me, summoning my heart and mind, calling them forth to what? I cannot say. That does not matter. I'm prepared to go. You won't see sails unfurl. No glittering way will open up. You may not even know I've been somewhere and back or what I've found. You may just notice I am still around. And finally, those who struggle with addiction often wonder what it will take to quit. Those who love those who struggle with addiction wonder the same thing. Bruce's dramatic monologue, The One Thing, provides us an answer. I'll tell you how I knew I needed help. I left my children in a grocery store in D.C., in a bad part of the city. Forgot them in an aisle. When I got home and started putting stuff away, it hit me. I stood there by the fridge. My God, my children. I left them in a grocery store. My God. I had to calm myself and had a drink. When I drove back, I found them at the curb. Molly was three and clutching Becky's hand. They'd both been bawling, but they'd known to wait. That was the thing that made me change my life. I didn't stop at once. It took a while. But that was when I really knew for sure. I had to stop. I didn't have any choice. It's when you face that one thing you can't lose. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we get an update on the latest research into ADHD, that common childhood disorder, plus a look at winter head injuries and the unknown hazards of indoor air quality and how to avoid them. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.